pushing buttons and pulling triggers. This is Gun Funny. Welcome to Gun Funny episode 206. Today I'm going to chat with Matt Waters, discuss Mexico's lawsuit against fire manufacturers, highlight a new product from HK, and talk about how Twitter experts are teaching Olympians the right way to shoot. I'm your host, Ava Flanell, and Matt, how are you doing today? I'm good, Ava. Thanks for having me on. Of course. We're both in Colorado right now. We were both saying how we woke up this morning and it's kind of fallish. I think it's in its 60s. Definitely out of season weather. Yeah, no kidding. I actually put on a bathrobe this morning. Oh, I'm kind of cold. But luckily, there's hope. Fall is not here just yet. I looked. The next 10 days is supposed to be high 80s, 90s, which is great because I'm supposed to record a bunch of content outside. Okay, it would have been cool if it was high 70s, low 80s, but nah, it's high 90s. But whatever. Who cares if I'm sweating balls? (laughs) It's going to be hot. (laughs) Yeah, you got to love Colorado. It's one extreme or the next. In this case, this morning, it's cold. Usually in the same day, too. Oh, I know. I know. No kidding. Well, at least it's not supposed to rain today, though. Yeah. I don't know if you saw that. At least that's what it says on my app. And I don't always trust my app because it'll say it's not supposed to rain and then it does. Yeah. It decides whatever the heck it wants to do. It, it It doesn't listen to weather apps. Yeah, totally. All right. Well, before we start talking about what it is that you do, I'm going to take a quick break real quick. Talk about Smith & Wesson. I don't know if you're familiar with Smith & Wesson. It's one of those things where I feel like you don't necessarily have to be into guns to be familiar with the name, but they make a lot of cool stuff. One of my favorites is I love their handguns. Their MMP, the 2.0s, I think they've perfected. I think it's great just right out of the box because usually if you buy a handgun, all right, well, the trigger, eh, switch out the trigger or switch out the sights or something like that. But I got to say, Smith & Wesson's done an awesome job just coming out with their handguns. They have the Shield Plus, which is great for concealed carry. They have the midsize, the full size. I personally really like the midsize and full size for not only home defense, but just bringing to the range and shooting. Because obviously, the larger the gun, the less recoil, which a lot of people don't realize. But I would definitely recommend check out their handguns, especially if you guys are in the market and you're not sure you want to buy a gun, but you're not really sure what to buy, definitely check out their selection. They have all kinds of models out there. I would say definitely look at their MMP 2.0. They're great. And that is at smith-wesson.com. Learn the things you never knew on deconstructing the industry. Matt, I just met you last week. I met you actually at Hillside Gardens. If you guys are in Colorado, you should definitely check it out. I actually have never heard of Hillside Gardens until last week. It was my doctor, actually. I went to the doctor's. Oh, do you have any other fun summer plans? And yeah, just trying to get outdoors as much as possible before fall comes. Go, have you checked out Hillside Garden? It's really pretty. Every Wednesday, they do a concert series. No, I've never even heard of it. Yeah, it's really cool. And the thing is, is I was born and raised in Colorado. I did spend eight years in New York City, but ultimately I feel like I've been here long enough where I pretty much know and have heard of everything and I've never heard of Hillside Gardens. 
And so went there and I loved it. It was such a cool place, just such a nice atmosphere. I expected just one band, but there was lots of little bands everywhere. There were little areas where you could buy drinks and food. And I just really liked the vibe. I really liked it. I definitely plan on attending again. And even if you don't like the music, and I love live bands, regardless of what they're playing, but it was just such a cool vibe that I would say if you guys are in Colorado Springs, definitely check it out. One of the things that I saw was there was a little area where it was blacksmithing. Oh, that's interesting. Different than what you typically see. And that's where I met you and you were just doing blacksmithing right there on the spot. And I was thinking as I was watching you work, that's definitely something that is, well, I thought that it was sort of a lost art, but it's actually kind of making a comeback, which we'll talk about here shortly. But instead of me explaining what it is that you do, can you just tell listeners what blacksmithing is and how you got started? Yeah. Well, I mean, Hillside has just been an awesome opportunity to meet a lot of people and, you know, it, it's gotten it the kind of the news out that blacksmithing is still alive in the Springs. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's that been a great opportunity. One thing that I thought was kind of cool is you were definitely kind of entertaining and you remembered a lot of people's names and yeah. from people that came previous Wednesdays and stuff. And man, that's good because I am so bad with names. So I work for a place. There's actually this school that I taught at for three years is called Kilroy's Workshop, and it's in the Springs too. And they, we teach, well, I say we, I don't work there anymore, but they teach blacksmithing, bladesmithing, and welding. And so I was an instructor there for a long time. And the owner, Ron Hardman, just really stressed on me and showed me how big of an impact it makes in people's lives when you remember their names. Mm-hmm. You know, when you like, when you say, like, oh, hey, dude, you know, it's clear that you don't remember their name, but if you can remember that their name, that it really shows them that you're not just trying to get them to buy something and you're not just trying to get something from them, but there's actually some sort of a relationship there and and they can kind of feel like they're a part of a community. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually a really good point. Okay. So what made you, because I realized I asked you a million questions in just one sentence. So (laughs) yeah, obviously, and I'm supposed to be the professional, but what is blacksmithing? Blacksmithing If you boiled it down to just a simple answer, you have heat source, that's the forge, and then you're working iron-based material, right? So either iron or steel. A modern blacksmith is using usually a gas forge, but back in the day, you know, they'd use a coal forge and that's powered. You get the coals hot enough through a bellows. A bellows is an air source that blows air into the fire and that gets the fire hot enough to get the metal to a plastic state, plastic state, that just means it's soft. Mm -hmm. So the fire gets it hot, it's soft. You can take it out and you can hit it with a hammer into whatever shape you want. And that's where the skill and the art comes in in blacksmithing. Obviously there's a skill aspect. That's not really, you don't need to be an artist to do because you need to, you know, forge it to a specific shape, but there's a huge opportunity for artists and blacksmithing to really create some beautiful stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And you kind of started to tell your story a little bit last week, which I thought was interesting. Man, I have to get you on the show. You (laughs) wanted to do this since you were younger. Well, which I have to say, because obviously people can't see you, but you are pretty young. Yeah, I'm 28. So I'm, I'm still pretty young. Yeah, I wanted to do it. I mean, like I was just like a dork in high school who loved Lord of the Rings. And I was like, man, they blacksmith in that. Obviously, it's a movie and I knew that, but I wanted to see, do people actually do this? 
And turns out they do. And I did some research, found some YouTube videos, and there's actually a there's a pretty decent community even back, I don't know, that was like 12 years ago, 11 or 12 years ago, and came into contact with some really good people. And my parents, I told them, you know, what it was, what I wanted to do, and they let me build a forge. So the forge was a hole in the ground in the backyard with a hairdryer for the bellows, that <laughs> air source, and a railroad track for the anvil. That's where it started. And what kind of hair dryer are we talking about? Because I'd imagine... Uh, my sister's. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I got in trouble for that. <laughs> That's hilarious. Because ultimately, I'm thinking, does it have to be a specific type of hair dryer, something that's a little more powerful or... No, it's amazing. You would have laughed if you'd seen it. And it's cool to look at where you know, the opportunities I've had since then, because now I work, you know, for years, I work teaching in a shop that has a power hammer, multiple presses, we built on site forges that have natural gas. And that's how they run. So like, I literally went from like, the most primitive, not the most primitive, from a very primitive setup to one of the best setups you could ask for. Yeah, that's cool. It shows that you have experience using both. And I would assume that when you're using something that's pretty just a hole in the ground with a hair dryer, you have to work harder to perfect something that you're trying to make. And so then when you get something that's more state of the art, it's probably easier, but to learn on the worst probably creates some of the best work. In my opinion, that's what I would think. That's been my experience. I think I'm really grateful for those times. I wouldn't want to go back to it. I would if I had to, you know, but having started there and then being able to use like, cause you know, when I made knives back then I use a hand file to, to get the knife file to shape. Now I use a belt grinder, you know, it's got massive amounts of power, amazing abrasives, and it, you know, makes the knife making process really fast if you know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So looking at that, I'm really thankful for it. It was definitely foundational to build my skill there. Yeah. Okay, so you went from your setup in the backyard to then teaching? Well, for a long time, it was the setup in the backyard. And I met Ron, the owner of Kilroy's Workshop, randomly. Like, I think that was just something the Lord worked out and we met each other because I was working a different job. He was getting propane and he was his shop was small at that time. And my boss at that job was like, hey, Matt's got to meet this guy. He's a blacksmith. He knew I was. And so we talked and like in that moment in front of my other boss, I said, are you hiring? And Ron was, and he hired me as a lead instructor the next week or something. Wow. And then from there, you're still working there, right? I actually stopped working there about six or seven months ago and have my own business now. So my business is knife sharpening and making custom knives. Okay. And then at what point did you start working at Hillside? Uh, Hillside. So my wife and I got married there two years ago and actually our wedding coordinator from there remembered me and remembered I was a Smith and they needed a blacksmith. So they contacted me and asked me to come out and start doing demos there on Wednesday nights. Oh, nice. And I wonder what ultimately made them think that they need a blacksmith. The owner, Larry, just really likes trades. Uh -huh. He loves keeping them alive and also like spreading awareness that they're still going on. Yeah. So he has a passion for it and he has a passion for like sharing that with people. And so that's where the idea of having a blacksmith came from. 
Nice. And you just sit there and demonstrate every Wednesday. Yeah. And yep. it's funny. I don't do a ton of work because so much of it is like people, like you said, you come up and you're like, oh my gosh, this is a thing. Like people are still doing this. Yeah. And it's a good time to interact with people. And so I do some smithing, but it's not like a work day. You know, I'm not like headphones in focus, just working. It's more of an opportunity to connect. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Let's go over exactly how, if I were to make a knife, and I actually, I did tell you, could I basically hire you to walk me through the process and make a knife and record the entire thing, which I think would be awesome because I still think, even though a lot of these things that used to be popular back in the day, they're kind of starting to come back, even the fashion, which I don't really love. Bell bottoms now are back. Oh, oh are please. They? <laughs> yeah, I really don't want to wear bell bottoms again. Blacksmiths <laughs> with bell bottoms. That could be a thing. I know. <laughs> that shouldn't be a thing. That's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but you know, you never know. Yeah, and yeah somebody's going to do it. But I thought that it would be kind of cool to, from the process, start to finish, but which we still might be doing. But can you just kind of walk me through and, and listeners, ultimately, from start to finish, if you were to make a knife, what is it yeah. that you would do? So when you're making a knife, there's so many different approaches. I'm going to go with the blacksmithing with forging the knife. There's a lot of makers who don't forge and there's nothing wrong with that. I think there's a time and place for it. When you forge a knife, you get, usually you buy a piece of high carbon steel. So the carbon content needs to be high enough that you can harden the blade. If there's not enough carbon, it's not going to hold a good edge Mm -hmm. because with a kitchen knife, so we're going kitchen knife and forging. A kitchen knife has to be really thin. You got to get that edge really thin. And so you have to have a steel that's got basically enough carbon that it can take a really hard edge. And then it's got to be a steel that's fairly forgiving because forging is kind of brutal on the steel. You know, you're heating it up and literally hitting it with a hammer. Mm -hmm. So you've got to put the steel through basically a reset process. But first thing you do, you get your bar of steel and you're going to heat it up and get it's called a preform. A preform is forging the steel into basically a smaller version of the knife shape. And it's smaller because you're going to forge in bevels after that. So you basically you forge it so it's pointy and you forge out the handle, right? But it's smaller than the actual knife is going to be in the end because if you took that and looked at the thickness, it's really thick. Mm-hmm. But you forge the point in, you forge in the preform, and then This is something that when I'm teaching and when I used to teach really confused people, but it is fun watching the eyes kind of like light up when they see it happening. You curve the blade. So like typically the sharp edge is the curvy edge, right? It curves Mm -hmm. back. Before you can get that, you have to curve the piece of steel the opposite direction. So if you're holding your, you know, say you're holding a kitchen knife so you can picture this, you got a kitchen knife, pretend it's a thick piece of steel with just a point, and then you curve it away from your hand. So it's curving the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. And then something pretty cool happens when you start forging in the bevel. The bevel is the flat of the blade. So it's thick on the spine and it's really thin on the edge. That's the bevel. And you got to forge that in. So you got this banana curve going forward, right? And you start forging in the bevel. And as that steel thins out on only one side, it actually curves back into the shape of the knife. So if you're, you know, a good smith will know what preform to shape that piece of steel to. So after they bevel, the knife is shaped. And the process, if you were to watch this, would not make any sense to you. You would think the knife is backwards. Mm -hmm. But as you forge that bevel, the knife basically 
unfolds from that banana you forged it into, into the correct shape. It's really cool watching. After forging, you have to heat treat the knife. That's where the knife, the steel becomes a knife. Because at this point, it's just a piece of steel. You have to undo the damage of forging. Forging causes a lot of stress in the steel. So you put the steel through it, uh, basically some heat cycling. You heat it up and cool it down just in still air. You do that a number of times dependent on what steel you're using and what its needs are. And then you heat the steel up and the steel soft after normalizing. That's what that's called. So if you need to drill holes, that's when you do it. You'd clean it up on the grinder, but leave it thick enough that you can quench it. And so quenching is when you heat the steel up, it's called critical temp. So basically the steel is in solution. I could get real scientific with it as much as I know, at least. Mm -hmm. But the basics is you heat it up to a specific temp for that steel and you quench it. And so it's a rapid cooling process for a simple carbon steel, which is what we're talking about right now. And so you usually heat it up in an oven or in a forge and you quench it in oil and that hardens the blade. So now you've taken the stress away and normalizing and the steel is uniform inside and and ready to be hardened. And then you heat it up and quench it. So you've hardened the blade. Now the blade is really brittle. It's really, really hard, which is what you want, but it's too brittle. So it's a little too hard. So then you heat it up to a lower temp, like around 400 degrees, and you let it sit there for two hours. This is all pretty basic. So if somebody's listening, this doesn't apply to every steel. I feel like I should say that. Well, um, this is pretty basic and I'm listening really hard to wrap my mind I around know, it. And this is basic <laughs> and like, I, yeah, probably most Wait, I have all the questions. What kind of oil are we putting it in? What oh, are the temperatures and- of the oil? Because I just found out what, God, I was at my cousin's the other day and they did, oh, it's going to drive me nuts that I can't think of it. But you know, when you boil water, you put green beans in it for just maybe two minutes and then take it out and then put it in ice cold water. Yeah. And uh, why can't I think of the name? I knew that that happened, but I guess I never knew what the name was for it. And so that's all I keep thinking is you heat it up, but then you probably cool it down. But then you're saying you also can use just air to cool it down. Well, that's for normalizing. And that's taking the stress of forging away. Okay. It's like it's resetting the steel to an unstressed state. Mm -hmm. And then you harden it. If you go straight from forging to hardening, you got a crap knife. It's just, it sucks. And what's going to happen if you do that? Ultimately, is it just going to break in half? There's a chance it could. There's a chance it could crack in the quench. It could warp. But if it doesn't do either one of those and, and you're able to temper it and then you finish your knife, if you took that blade and you snapped it in half, you'd see the grain. So steel has grain and it would look like sugar crystals. Hmm. And what you want is if you snap that knife in half, what you want is one, it'd be really hard to snap in half. And two, when you do, you'll see it looks like velvet. So steel has grain and it can expand and get really big or it can contract and get really small and tight. You want that tight grain. And so that's why you normalize before you quench. Interesting. I'm going to take a quick break real quick. Talk about SB Tactical. I'm sad to say that at least for now, this is SB Tactical's last day as a sponsor. As you guys know, with the ATF's proposed rulemaking change, SB Tactical is at the forefront of fighting this blatant overreach of authority by the Biden administration, and they've put everything into that fight. 
that said, definitely keep supporting them, buying their products. They're still legal to buy at this point. And if you haven't already filled out a comment on ATF's proposed rulemaking, you can do that if you just go to gunfunny.com and you click on news, it will be on the top. There's a link that puts you directly to ATF's website. And it also, I've made a pamphlet of what you guys can do in order to make sure that you're following the guidelines so that your comment is going to count. And we definitely need all hands on deck. But in the meantime, if you guys are in the market for a brace, check out SB Tactical. That's sb-tactical.com. Use the code GUNFUNNY15, and that's going to get you 15% off. What kind of yeah. oil are you putting it in? So when I started, I used canola oil, and I heated it up before I quenched it. So I took another piece of just you know scrap steel and heated up the canola oil. That changed the viscosity of the oil, so it was ready to cool the steel down at the correct rate or within the, you know, a certain range of the correct rate. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, I mean, even back then, what I use now is a specific oil for quenching knives. It's like engineered to quench knives. Hmm. A lot of people use Parks 50. That's the name of a really popular one. Interesting. And this is just basically, it's a little bit warmer. It's actually, you don't even have to change the temp of it. It's ready to go just how it is. Okay. So at no point are you putting this in cold water? No, no. You don't want to put it. <laughs> when you're grinding it. So we're almost there. When you, after the quench, you, you temper it and then you, you grind it and you put it in cold water just throughout the grinding process. Because if you heat it up past a certain point, you're going to take away your heat treat, mm-hmm. which you don't want to do. Hmm. Okay. And then what do you do? Yeah. So temper and then you got to grind it. So you might have to fix some warps. Knives warp sometimes. It just happens. And it's a fairly easy fix. There's a lot of methods. It involves heat, but you just control the heat, how much you put in it. And then you use, you can use like a three pin jig. That's what I use. And that it sounds like, what the heck is that? There's three pins. There's two on one side and one on the other. And you put that in a vice and then you heat up the spine of your blade and you can straighten any warps you have. Oh, okay. And so if you need to straighten, you straighten and then you'll start grinding. And grinding grinding basically means just smoothing it out. Uh, It's a lot more than that. Actually, grinding is taking away everything that's not the knife. It's like you're sculpting the knife blade. Like It's got to be really flat. It's got to be clean. Well, it should be. uh, Not always. Not everybody does that, but it should be. Because you want the knife to, especially a kitchen knife, to be as thin as it can be without being fragile. Mm -hmm. So there's a line, you know, you can go too far, but it's really easy also just to leave it too thick. And you got to use the abrasives you use is really important. You need sharp abrasives. You need new belts basically. And grinding is, it's just as much a skill as forging. It's, if not, it's where people struggle even more. Forging is, is pretty easy compared to grinding. Grinding a knife and grinding it well is it takes a long time because you can't see the side you're grinding. You got to develop a feel for it. Yeah. And that takes, you know, there's techniques that help and learning from people who are good at it, which I've been blessed to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. And then just a ton of practice, but you got to, so you grind it and then you polish it. And you're saying that's like smoothing it. Polishing is smoothing the surface out and you use belts for that, but really high grip belts and you polish it. And then if it's a really nice knife and you want like a clean finish on it and not the grinding marks, you hand sand it. 
And hand sanding is the, the grinder marks are horizontal across the blade. Hand sanding takes those scratch lines and puts them in line with the blade. And it's a really clean, really professional look. Okay. And then what about the handle? Yeah, the handle. There's a lot of different ways to approach handles, but we'll just say it's a full tang and a full tang is just a really strong knife. And full tang means the tang, which when you're forging is the part that would be the handle, either go into the handle or that the handle would be attached to. Mm-hmm. And so a full tang is when that knife handles the full shape of the profile of the handle and you glue scales onto the side Well, you epoxy them on some really good epoxies out there. And, you know, they're good with UV and moisture and you want to use one of those and You've got to cut grooves on the inside of the tang and the inside little fullers. And that gives the, the epoxy a place to sit. Mm-hmm. And you cut it on the inside of your knife scales and the inside of the, uh, on the sides of the tang. And then you, you use a lot of clamps and you let the, the epoxy cure and then you grind the handle to shape. And then you can take the finish work as far as you want. If it's a Damascus knife, you've got to hand sand the blade and get the blade pretty much finished then carve the handle scales, sand them, finish them, and then glue everything together as the very last step and clean off all the epoxy. So making a Damascus knife and making it really nice takes a whole lot more work than just what's called a mono steel. And mono steel just means one type of steel. Gotcha. Um, I was going to ask you about Damascus because I really like the way that that looks. But oh, it's I, beautiful. Yeah. yeah. What gives it that different colors? Yeah, that's a great question. With Damascus, you have two or more different steels that you combine. And then, and the combination of them is you're, you're taking all, you have to, you have all these layers is what you start with. So you have two strips of steel and you cut them into like four inch pieces and you stack them up alternating. So one steel is 1084 and the other is 15 and 20. And those are just weird numbers to you, but one has nickel and one doesn't. And the nickel content, they're both high carbon, but the nickel content is what makes one line shiny and the other isn't. So the lines in Damascus that are shiny, that are silver, that has nickel. And then the dark lines, it doesn't have nickel. And so you stack these two steels up, you forge weld them. Forge welding is where you heat it to to like about 2,200 degrees, a little bit hotter, and you compress it. And all those different pieces of steel become one homogenous piece. It's really cool. Hmm. And then you can forge that out. You can twist it, restack it, cut it into bars, put those bars back together. You can manipulate that pattern in unlimited number of ways. It's really cool. And you, you do the rest of the process. You forge the knife, you, you heat treat it, you grind it. And when you sand it, when you're done sanding it, you etch the knife. You etch it in something called ferric chloride. There's a lot of other things to etch into. That's one of the most popular. And when you etch it, that etchant eats away the steel that doesn't have nickel and reveals that pattern that's inside of the knife. So you don't see the pattern until you put it in that stuff. No, you don't see it till the very end. Wow. So you have no idea if it's even working. You can do like what's called a test etch and you get an idea if it's working. I'm looking on your Instagram right now and there's one knife where it looks like just the tip is Damascus. Yeah, that knife. So I collect or I don't collect. I keep all the scraps from previous projects. So Mm -hmm. like to making a Damascus billet on that knife, 
I had some leftover Damascus pieces. Yeah. And I put it all inside of a can. It's called canister Damascus. And then, so I threw all these chunks of Damascus and just other bits of, you know, leftover pieces from, you know, previous projects and then put powdered steel inside of it and then turned that into a a knife, Hmm. forge welded it, forged it out. And so those, that bit at the end of the knife, that's just the, one of the chunks of Damascus cutoffs that I had. Wow. And that's just where it landed. Yeah. So it's a really cool way to reuse, you know, all these cutoffs that otherwise would be useless. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. And then ultimately there's other knives with it, but that's not the finished product. That's just other knives that you made that are within that picture. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That looks really cool. Thanks. I got the cleaver on there too, that I did that with. Yeah. And actually I'm thinking the stuff that I saw at Hillside Gardens, cool. It looks like some medieval because you were selling some bottle openers and stuff and it looks like some medieval times stuff, but you're able to make stuff that actually looks like kitchen knives, things that you just go to the store and buy. Right. There are that really high end, like generational type kitchen knives, like they'll outlive me. There'll be something that people can literally hand down. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, It's cool. Yeah. And what does something like that, if somebody wanted kitchen knives, what does something like that cost? Usually 500 to $1,000. You know, that's like, it can be below that. It can be above that. Mm -hmm. That's for one knife. That's for one knife. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, like having a whole set. Cause last night I was cooking and my knives suck. I think it's that Emerald de Grasse yeah. or whatever those knives, and I've had them for a little while. They've never been sharpened. And also, in my defense, though, they probably shouldn't suck because it's not like they've seen a lot of use. I don't really cook. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and not to mention the finished product. Uh, I took a picture. I posted on my Patreon page, but it all looked burnt. Also, I did make the honey sriracha Brussels sprouts, so you have to put oh. them in the oven. And so they ultimately look burnt. In my defense, it was supposed to look burnt, but (laughs) (laughs) no, it actually tasted good. I was surprised. (laughs) Also, one thing that comes to mind is working over a fire. I got to imagine that's probably, especially now in the summer, that's got to suck. It can be miserable. Yeah. The fire, I try to plan out like, you know, when I do forging, like there's some days you just can't get around it. You got to forge the whole day. Yeah. So I guess it's it's good for staying in shape because you're sweating like the entire day. <laughs> well, not only that, but also hammering the steel. That's my physical job. Yeah. I try to work as smart as possible because, you know, I'm thinking long term and I'm thinking longevity. And if you hand hammered every single thing you did, like you'd wreck yourself. Yeah. Uh, so I use the power hammer and the press as much as I can because those are great tools and they save my body. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's smart. Yeah, because really, I mean, it is one of those things where because it's so physical that you don't want to hurt yourself and then you can't produce these knives anymore. Yeah, I try to think I try to like practice techniques and methods that I could still do when I'm, you know, 80 if I live that long. Mm -hmm. Because if you try to do something that's completely dependent on, you know, physical ability and youth, I guess, like you're not going to do it for that long. Yeah. You're asking about what, you know, a knife costs and then the set you have and something that I I think like people don't realize, but it's kind of funny if you point it out, 
most houses, including mine, have a kitchen set, right? It costs like a hundred bucks. You get like nine or 10 knives in it. Mm -hmm. And out of that whole set, almost always people go for the same knife. They use one knife out of that whole set. They're like, this is my favorite knife. Well, it's the one that you chop up all the onions and stuff with. It's the thicker one. And I'm sure that that's what everybody goes for. (laughs) It's funny because like you've got nine of them and you, you, there's one that is, that's the only one you use. And really you only need like two or three knives. Yeah. Like if you have two or three great knives, that's all you need. That's actually a really Um, good point. You don't need this set of 10. Not that there's anything wrong with having 10 knives or 30 knives or a hundred knives are awesome. But when you think about what do you actually use, you usually use one knife out of that whole set. Yeah. Yeah. There's the bread knife or something. And uh, all right. Yeah. <laughs> do you really need that knife to cut your bread? Not, a loaf of yeah, bread or something? People use them all. Yeah. No. And the only other thing. Yeah. So it's always the big, thick one that I use to cut up vegetables and stuff or whatever. And then the little tiny one that's the scalping knife, right. I guess, to cut little tiny I hate cutting meat. Meat kind of grosses me out. But even yesterday when I cooked chicken, I cut more off the freaking chicken than I actually cooked. That that piece looks weird. Up, oh, cut this piece off. And it's just yeah. the little veins and the white things and extra skin. Oh, no, we're not cooking it. So I use that knife. But that's actually a really good point is I'm sure that I have knives in my set that I've never even used. Yeah. And it's just funny when like I made myself, my wife and I, one chef's knife and it's we have the whole set, you know, and now this one that I made, it's the only knife I use. Hmm. It's the only knife that we use when we do food prep. And how often do you sharpen it? Well, it holds its edge for a long time. I probably sharpen it every like month because I use it a lot. And when I say sharpen, I don't mean like I have to do a lot of work. I run it over like a strop where like I might have to take it to a stone, but it's, you know, like five minutes of work and it's sharp again. What about the knife sharpeners that you can buy? I think it's like two little metal circle blades or something that you oh, run it through. Oh, and you stick the knife on and pull it. Yeah. Oh, I hate those. <laughs> they make me cringe. Yeah. I'm sure it puts some sort of edge on a knife, but it's a set geometry, which doesn't work for every knife. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not a universal thing. And it might do something to your knife, but really at a certain point, your knife needs to be taken to an abrasive. And that's what a stone is or a belt or whatever abrasive you're using. And then to something that polishes that you need to create a new edge is what a knife needs. And using that to like maintain the edge, it probably ruined the edge. If you had it sharpened professionally and then ran it through that, it probably ruined it. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. One thing that has always been like nails on a chalkboard, I'd rather hear nails on a chalkboard than people biting their utensils. And I don't know why I hate that. Yeah. But for me, the little circle things, running your knife through it, it's that same sound and it just kind of makes me cringe. It's a horrible sound. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to take another quick break and talk about Caldwell. If you guys are looking for new ear pro, but you don't want that bulk of the earmuffs, you should check out the Emacs Shadows from Caldwell. They're rechargeable Bluetooth earplugs that look kind of like, I guess, Apple earpods, but they have the 23 decibel of noise reduction when shooting, as well as directional microphones when you're not shooting so that you can hear everyone around you. 
Being Bluetooth, they also have the option to listen to music from your phone or make your phone calls. I never would have thought, but they also are designed to reduce noise from lawnmowers. That's actually one thing that I just found out the other day is because my neighbor, she always mows her lawn. She wears earmuffs and I always thought it was kind of weird, but apparently even mowing your lawn can ruin your hearing. Anything that's a loud noise that's over so many decibels, you might even want to wear them when you're mowing your lawn. If you guys want to check that out, head on over to caldwellshooting.com. Don't forget to use the code GUNFUNNY10 and you'll get 10% off your first order. You also, when we were talking just briefly last week, you were on the TV show Forged. What was it? Yeah, Forged in Fire. Okay. I was going to be a Forged in Freedom or something. (laughs) (laughs) That's not a bad name. Forged in Fire. It was a great experience. Tell me about that. Yeah. When I, so I met Ron, like I told you, got the job at Kilroy's and I had applied to be on Fortune Fire maybe two years before I met Ron mm-hmm. and then started working for Ron and, and working for Kilroy's. And they all encouraged me like, Hey, you should get on Fortune Fire. And I didn't know they were still making it because I didn't watch a ton of TV. I was just working a lot. Yeah. And so I was like, yeah, I'll reach out. And I did. And it went seamlessly. I mean, from me contacting the casting person all the way through to being on the show, it was, it was a breeze. It was like, it just, it all lined up perfectly. And I had an amazing time out there. I didn't end up winning, but I still had a great time. It's like a once in a lifetime thing. You know, I'd love to go back on if I got the chance too. What does the show consist of? And is it ultimately like who can make the best knife? Yeah, it really is. It's not necessarily just knife. It's it's a weapon from history. So when you start, there's four of you and there's a three hour, typically a three hour round one challenge. And that challenge, you have to take a really strange or difficult to work into a knife piece of steel or material and create a knife and they give you parameters. So it's got to be a knife. My knife was a recurve, had to have a recurved edge and you have to use your forge pieces from your forge. And then this piece of high carbon steel we give you. And the piece of high carbon steel they gave us wasn't enough steel to make a knife that they wanted out of. So we had to use our forges, put it on the sides. It's called sand my and forge out a knife like that. And you only have three hours to do it. And so it's quite a challenge, you know, and that's round one and someone will get eliminated just off. You have, what you have to do in round one is get all the way through quench you got to quench your knife and then they'll temper it off camera because that's just boring. You just put it in another. Mm-hmm. And so round one, someone gets eliminated. Most of the time there's somebody it's like, okay, yeah, they're, they're probably going to get eliminated. Not all the time, I guess. Um, and round two is the handle challenge. So they give you in our competition, they gave us two hours to get a handle on Two hours to get a handle on is not a lot of time because you still have to take the blade from round one and finish grind it, sharpen it, and get your handle on in two hours. Like it was crazy. It was all out. And at the end of round two, they do testing. So they'll do a destruction test first. So in our challenge, they hit it against a brick 10 times. Oh, wow. It's stuff you would (laughs) that you wouldn't do typically to a knife. knife. Yeah. But For TV, it is very entertaining. So it's horrible for the knife, but that's the purpose of the show. And then they'll do a cut test after that. So like in ours, they're going to cut a piece of ham and somebody gets eliminated in that round. That's where I went out. 
what happens? Like it just doesn't cut the ham. No, mine, when they're hitting against the brick, did not make it through the brick. It was like still in one piece kind of, but yeah. it kind of like, I ground it way too thin. Oh, okay. And so the brick like ate my knife. Oh. Uh, <laughs> <but> yeah. <laughs> uh, when I got back home, I was like, I got to redo that. So I redid it and we had like a fortune fire party at Kilroy's and I redid the tests and the knife killed it. You know, it did great. So. Yeah. Well, I'm sure also fun. you're working under pressure. It's being recorded. You have a camera right there in your face. Yeah. You're also probably not thinking and you're not doing your best work, I would imagine. I definitely did not do my best work. That's for sure. And yeah, there's there's all these elements that I practiced for it, but I didn't ever practice with, you know, all those factors. Like there's a camera crew, Mm -hmm. the intensity and like tunnel vision you get in that first 30 minutes. And you do things that you're like, why on earth did I do that? What was mm-hmm. I thinking? Yeah. But you weren't thinking you were on adrenaline and you're yeah. like, I can't believe I'm here. This is crazy. This is so fun. And yeah, you don't do your best work. You do the best you can do in that time and given the circumstances. So yeah, I trained, you know, back home and, and practiced as much as I could. I just didn't anticipate, you know, everything that would be going on. So yeah. I think that played into it. And then things happen, you know? It's a competition and the guy who has the least skill and experience could be the guy who wins. Yeah. That's just that's true. Yeah. The 19 year old could beat the master bladesmith. It's competition. Anything can happen. Mm -hmm. And then after that, what did they do? So then they cut the ham and then what are some of the other? Well, then they, you know, they eliminate one. So I was eliminated. And then the third round is when they actually reveal the final round weapon, what the Smiths have to create. And they give them, a set amount of time. When the show first started, they had five days. And now I think they have three and a half days, like not much time. Mm-hmm. The guys from my episode, I think they had four days and they had to create this like spear thing. It's called the partisan. And they had like four days to do it. So they fly them back home to their home shop. They create the weapon, they fly back and they test them. And in that third round, they do you know, all sorts of like a destruct, like I think they do a kill test first on like a ballistics dummy and it, you know, it's all gory and and crazy and probably great for TV. Mm-hmm. And then they'll do some sort of destruction test, like another cut test or whatever they, they think that weapon needs to be put through. And in that round, it was uh, the guys I went against were Ian, it's like Night Owl Forge. He went out round one. And then John Norwood, he's got a pretty sweet business where he sells blacksmithing hammers. And then Phil Shree, I think is his name. And he's the one who won. So John and Phil were in the last round and John Spear, he, he treated it. So it was softer in the center and hard on the edges, which like is a good technique, but it just didn't hold up in one of the tests because it was softer in the center and it kind of bent. Yeah. Crazy. The things that you don't really think about. Yeah, it From, is. You don't do this and you're not in the industry. Oh, knife's a knife. Right. It's funny because whenever I run into people who watch the show, there's a lot of, and everyone does this, you know, that I do it. Like there's a lot of like armchair quarterbacks. uh, Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Oh, this guy should have done that. It's like, I don't think you've ever actually forged anything. How do you know? (laughs) Yeah. But the show is cool because it's brought a ton of awareness to the craft. Well, yeah, and I'm sure it's probably piqued some people's interest and maybe influenced some people to go out there and want to become blacksmiths and sort of brought back 
something that I think is sort of a lost. Absolutely. Yeah. I've met so many students who the whole reason they came in was because of fortune fire. Hmm. Even a few, it was really cool. They watched the episode I was on. They learned I was from the Springs. They Googled it and they came to the shop that same day and were like, what's up, Matt? Like, (laughs) it's just cool. There's been a lot of, I've had a lot of cool experiences and met people who, you know, discovered my work and then Kilroy's through the show. Yeah, it's been awesome. Definitely. What do you have planned for the future? Yeah, I want to get a sharpening business for the Colorado Springs area going and do something. I've got some ideas to maybe do something nobody's done before with knife sharpening and try to reach, like you were saying, your knives, like, has anybody ever reached out for your knives to be sharpened or have you ever had them sharpened? Probably not. Yeah. And just bring awareness to people that they don't need to go buy new knives necessarily. It's awesome if they do, because they're probably going to, you know, if they're handmade, they'll last forever. They can be an heirloom, like family mm-hmm. knife, you mm-hmm. know, like that, that doesn't really happen. But with knife sharpening, if you already have knives like that, or you have knives that you just value when they're dull, they're not done. Like you can bring them in and get them sharpened. Yeah. And then it'll introduce people to the craft too. Yeah. I think that sharpening is a great introduction to the custom knife world and the blacksmithing world. And it, you know, it's a good way to educate people on how to take care of what they already have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So if people want to follow you on social media, where can they find you? Yeah. On Instagram and Facebook, it's Matt makes knives. All right. Awesome. Just one, you know, one word, no spaces or anything. And my website is Matt waters knives and there's a lot that I'm getting going right now, but right now I'm still making knives and then putting out custom work and then sharpening a whole lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Okay, cool. All right. Well, I know you can't stay for the rest of the show, but I really appreciate your time. I will probably see you at Hillside Gardens. And then if nothing else, hopefully we can make a video where you walk me through the process. So at any point, if listeners are like, man, that sounds great. Like it just, because even for me, all right, it's kind of hard to wrap my mind around, but it's also right. listening as opposed to actually seeing it happen. I'm sure it would yeah. make a lot more sense. It hopefully, would make sense to see it. Yeah. So hopefully we can collaborate, make a video and bring more awareness to what it all involves when making these knives. That'd be awesome. Yeah, yeah. we should do it. Yeah. Well, Matt, thank you again for joining me. Thank you. Yeah. And I will see you later. All right, Ava. Thanks. Moving forward with the show. IWI just announced they're bringing back the legendary Galil Ace 21. If you're not familiar with it, the Ace 21 is a rock and lock magazine version of their 556 variant. The normal 556 Galil Ace uses standard AR mags with an AR style mag insertion. The rock and lock style is more like an AK where you insert the mag and you rock it back to lock it. It includes all the other improvements IWI has made to the Galil design, as well as including weekend charging, weight reduction, and more. They come equipped with a folding brace from SB Tactical and two 35-round mags. Check those out at iwi.us. Don't forget to use the code GUNFUNNY15 for 15% off any accessories that you find online. Today in politics. Politics. 
what is going on in the world today. It's political AF. Mexico sues U.S. firearm manufacturers. On Wednesday, the Mexican government filed a lawsuit in U.S. federal court accusing Smith & Wesson, Barrett Firearms, Colt Manufacturing, Glock, Ruger, Remington, and others claiming their business practices encouraged trafficking of arms into Mexico used in shootings in the country, which is ridiculous. The Mexican government claims they're owed $10 billion in damages and that companies needed to put an immediate stop to their harmful practices. Mexico's filing states that over 500,000 firearms are trafficked from the U.S. into Mexico every year, and they claim 68% or 340,000 of them are produced by these companies. They claim in 2019, at least 17,000 murders were due to trafficked guns. They did not file anything against the government and the Biden administration, who, as we know, was part of the Obama's actual schemes of running guns into Mexico, known as Operation Fast and Furious. The NSSF responded, these allegations are baseless. The Mexican government is responsible for the rampant crime and corruption within their borders. This lawsuit filed by an American gun control group representing Mexico is an affront to U.S. sovereignty and a threat to the Second Amendment rights of the law-abiding Americans to keep and bear arms, a right denied to the Mexican people who are unable to defend themselves from the cartels. One of the attorneys representing Mexico is the chief counsel for the Brady campaign, which is obviously no surprise there. Actual numbers we know show these claims are less than truthful. In 2008, less than 12% of the guns seized in Mexico came from the U.S. Of the 7,200 they submitted for tracing, far more were not submitted to the U.S. for tracing because they knew that they did not come from the U.S. The real flow of illicit guns in Mexico comes from the U.S. government, who sells firearms directly to the Mexican government. Mexican soldiers frequently defect and start working for drug cartels and, of course, take their issued weapons with them. In the last few years, more than 150,000 soldiers defected. Also, reports from Amnesty International show that most lethal weapons used by the cartels come from Central America, as well as Latin America, which is supplied by China. The timing and corruption with gun control groups makes this another clear part of the strategy to attack the Second Amendment on all fronts. Manicore Arms If you guys have the Yugo M85 or the M92 AK, you need to go check out the sale Manicore Arms is having on their Renegade handguard. The Arc Lock version of the Renegade Palmer Forend is on closeout for only $19.95 right now. They're doing this to make room for their M Lock versions, but that's less than half the price. It's more than 50% off. The Renegade Forend has a bulge U shape to make it more comfortable than other handguards, and it's compatible with Magpul MOE rails, impact weapon components, and Manicor Arms Arc Lock rails. They're still available in Magpul Black and Bakelite Orange to match Bakelite AK mags. So definitely check those out it's at manicorearms.com. Remember to use the code AVAROCKS15. That gets you 15% off your order. Today's Q&A. Q&A. There's no such thing as a stupid question. Just kidding. 
Visit gunfunny.com forward slash contact to submit yours. I just read an article on your fast caps. After following a link from Smith & Wesson email, it was very interesting, but I have a question if you don't mind. I'm a new gun owner, having shot a single magazine worth of bullets. I did better than I expected, but haven't fired my pistol since, for a variety of reasons, primarily the cost of ammunition, but also the safety factor of where to practice. My backyard is wooded, but I'm still hesitant to shoot much there. I can see the advantages of fast caps, but could you please compare them to laser practice? Things I've seen where the equivalent of the fast cap triggers a laser that shows where you would have hit. I would say that both are good to use. The one that I've been using is the Strikeman system, and you hook it up to an app on your phone, and you point your gun at the target using the little insert. It's kind of like a snap cap, but it's a laser. And then you can look at your phone on the app, and it'll show exactly where you're hitting. I think that that's good. You could actually probably use both. Even if you put a snap cap on the top of your slide and practiced your trigger pull while using the laser, it might be a good idea. But I would say you're smart not to shoot in your backyard, which is wooded, because even if you don't think anyone's nearby, that doesn't mean that's the case. Somebody could be hiking or something like that. But I would find just a local range. And if that's not the case, then if you have to build something in your backyard, maybe rent a skid loader or something and build up a berm. But you definitely want to make sure that you're shooting into something substantial that's going to capture those bullets. The price of ammo, thankfully, is starting to come down and we're starting to see it more available. There is hope for more practice with live ammunition because at the end of the day, nothing's going to be the practice with live ammo versus snap caps or any of these laser systems. But I would say any practice at this point is better than nothing. I've never heard of them called fast caps. So I think you're thinking of snap caps or dummy rounds. But if you guys aren't familiar with those, it's essentially just the replica of a cartridge. It's plastic and you could practice loading, unloading, pretending to clear malfunctions. I'll even bring them to the range and load some magazines with live ammo, some snap caps. And then that will also help for you to stop anticipating the shot and work on that trigger pull. Hopefully that answers your question. If you guys haven't checked out my article that I wrote for Smith & Wesson, it's on their website. It's on their blog. I think it's called The Bench. If you search for their blog called The Bench, you should be able to see it. And mine should be the latest article that's on there. All right, moving forward. Primary arms. If you're looking for a good low power variable optic, Primary Arms has got some great optics. The SLX 1x8x24, the FFP, is an awesome option for a three-gun rifle or other applications where you want the option for quick close target acquisition and capable reticle for distance since it's a front focal plane reticle. The hold points are the same regardless of the zoom that you're on so that you can use them at any power. You can get that with the ACSS Raptor reticle for 556, 545, or 308. They go for $480, which is pretty awesome, especially for a FFP scope in that class. But don't forget to use the code AVA if you're buying any primary arms object, and that's going to land you a free one-piece scope mount that comes with every primary arms optic, and that is at primaryarms.com. Tactic Talk. 
discussing popular guns and gear. Love it? Hate it? Find out now. Today's Tacti Talk. Did HK finally listen to the desires of the civilian market? Unless you're a strict HK fanboy, probably not. If you're not familiar with it, the HK SL8 is a relic of the Clinton gun ban era when 10 round magazines were mandatory and the design of the imported guns were heavily neutered to get approved for importation. The SL8 was supposed to be the semi auto version of the highly desirable GE36 a short-stroke gas piston rifle popular all over the world for its high reliability and, let's face it, cold looks. The G36 has been known to go 15,000 rounds without cleaning. Thanks to releasing during the Clinton assault weapons ban, though, they made it more of a varmitine or sporting rifle and made it use a single-stack 10-round magazine instead of accepting standard mags. It also has a really blocky thumbhole stock and a heavy barrel. So if you want a bulky, uncomfortable varmint gun, it still might be for you. Ever since the assault weapons ban was lifted, HK fans have been having SL8s chopped up and rebuilt to work as true G36 clones with U.S. parts, which is very expensive to have done. Also, the SL8s themselves were never cheap, and lack of any new ones had HK fans asking for a real civilian version of the G36. In HK fashion, they released the same old SL8. At $1,700, unless you like to collect every model of HK, it may be a tough sell, especially since there's a real G36 receiver clone manufactured in the U.S. available today. They still look fairly cool, but at the price and the compromises and ergonomics and built-in capacity limits, I'd say it's probably going to be a pretty tough sell, but who knows. If you guys want to check that out, head on over to HK. GSM Outdoors. I've been a big fan of True Glow handgun sights for a long time. I liked it just because for the longest time, let's face it, any handgun sights, they're expensive. True Glow has always been able to offer quality and not charge an arm and a leg for you're talking about two little components. Their fiber optic and tritium sights are some of the nicest ones that I've seen and, like I said, priced competitively. One thing I've always noticed with them is they feel like they always just had this little bit of extra time spent to make sure that they have a smooth finish so that they don't catch on your holster like some of the other sights do. Plus, they have a ton of different options to choose from. So if you're looking at target sights, carry sights, and so on, they have everything available. One of my favorites are the TFX Pros since they're tritium night sights, but they also have a protected fiber optic so that they're great during the day and they're not going to get damaged from years of continuous carry. True Glow has a ton of other stuff too, so so if you're into archery, they've got gear for you as well, including sights, arrow rests, releases, and a lot more, which I actually didn't know until I looked at their website. If you want to check those out and other stuff, head on over to TrueGlow, T-R-U-G-L-O.com. Remember, if you use the code GUNFUNNY20, you will get 20% off. Today's AF segment. Stupid, funny, cool, interesting, awesome, as f- Never mind. AF. Mansplaining to Olympic champions. 
last month, and bear with me, I have no idea how to pronounce this lady's name, Vitalina Batsaroshkina from Russia, was posted on Twitter of her shooting an air pistol in the Olympics. The picture in question was actually from the 2016 Olympics where she won silver in the women's 10M air pistol event. In the picture, she was holding the air pistol one-handed straight out with a other hand in her pocket. Twitter experts were compelled to tell her that her grip was wrong. <laughs> One responded, I'm obsessed with the stance on the sharpshooter. The next said, does it look cool? Yes. With their wrist shatter the moment they fire? Absolutely. Another, not only are you going to have a broken wrist or nose, you're also going to have to deal with the fact you one-handed that gun for no reason other than to be bold. That will have a huge recoil. There's a reason why people tell you to hold the gun with both hands. Someone else replied to the mansplainers. You know she won gold, right? All of these guys clearly know nothing about air guns or center fire guns for that matters. Everyone can shoot one-handed. Also, the one-handed unsupported stance is a requirement for air pistol events. Vitalina went on to win gold in both the 10M and 25M events. It's pretty ridiculous how so many guys think that they need to explain to somebody how they shoot. And I actually almost wonder if they posted a picture of a man shooting this way, if they would have gotten the same reaction. But who knows? Either way, I think it's hilarious when keyboard warriors look like idiots. And I get every now and then, actually, with the Smith & Wesson article, there was two people that told me to keep my finger off the trigger, that I didn't have good trigger discipline. And clearly you didn't read the article because I'm dry firing the gun. How else am I supposed to dry fire if I'm not pulling the trigger? And I told somebody that, and well, it doesn't look like a safe environment. And I was in my classroom. And so I should only dry fire the gun when I'm at the range. It's just, ugh, I'm telling you, you need a thick skin and a lot of patience sometimes to be in front of a lot of people. It's just, it's annoying. Anyways, it is time to wrap up. I only have one last review. And it says, hey, Mama's Ava. I'm in the PNW Pacific Northwest. I'd say keep the heat, LOL. I'm a guy that prefers the cold. You got an awesome podcast. I just found your show. I only listen to people's podcasts through Spotify, and I don't know how to go on and leave a review on other places. Just listen to your GF-205 and the ban on all 9mm handguns. I'm going to purchase two 9mm single-stack drums that fit 1911s, lol, and I'd keep telling people to keep purchasing those Glock Fun Stick 33 rounds. They can't do anything as long as it's in common use. Well, I guess you're the winner. You're the only person that wrote a review this week, so congratulations. Just contact me at gunfunny.com, click on the Contact Us form, and I'll get a prize pack out to you. And guys, this is the perfect opportunity. If you haven't left a review, please do so, because your likelihood of Winning, I would say, is pretty high. If you guys like the show and you want to contribute, you should consider becoming a Patreon. That gets you access automatically to our Patreon group on Facebook. You obviously, if you're a Patreon and you're waiting to get access, well, you have to find the group on Facebook. It's just GF Media Patreons, and then I'll accept you. But if you want to become a Patreon, just head on over to gunfunny.com and click on the support the show link, and you could become a Patreon by doing that. Also, Blown Deadline, he's giving away a $300 gift certificate to a lucky patron each month. And I want to thank the $25 patrons. That is Corbin Bonafide, Iraq Veteran 8888, Ryan Morrison, Justin Paulson, Jason Anderson, Sportsman's Guide, D. 
Daniel Treadwell, Keith Calamore, and Melissa Ridings. Jon Snow wants me to say Operator Tickles was almost in the movie Mission Impossible, but they would have had to change the name to Mission Accomplished. All right. Well, on that note, I am out of here. I think I'm going to go do some stand-up paddleboarding. It's the newest thing that I'm into. But I hope everyone enjoys their week, and I will see you guys next week. Want to send feedback? Tell us about a company or anything else. Go to gunfunny.com forward slash contact. <laughs>